Hear the word of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. You may have a seat. There we go. Frank told me that the wires there are a speed bump, so I guess I was going too fast. We pray with me? Lord, we need you every hour. We need you every moment. I need you now. Who is sufficient for such a task as preaching and proclaiming your word? But Lord, I know that you are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think through the power that is within us. Now to him who is able to do all of this, be glory and honor and power in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. I'm Steve Hopped, one of the pastors here at Piney Ridge Church. It's my privilege to bring this message, this last message from the series on Exodus. We've been in it for a year and a half. You know, I love movies that have a big climax at the end that leads to a happy ending. I absolutely love it when Roy Hobbs smashes the light tower in right field to win the game, to win the pennant, to save the franchise. I love it when the entire town comes together to, to bail George Bailey and his bumbling uncle out of debt. And they all sing Old Lang Syne and the bell tinkles on the tree signifying that Clarence at long last has earned his wings. And kids, I even love it when... Since the invention of the kiss, there have only been five kisses that were rated as most passionate and more pure, but when Wesley kisses Buttercup, it leaves them all behind. And I love this last couple of verses from Exodus. It's a great climax. It's a happy ending. It's what this book has been building toward from the very beginning, God settling among his people. It's a climactic, a happy ending, 
And like any good movie that wants to have a sequel, has a little hook at the end to get us to want more. So as Nathan said, this is our final sermon in the book of Exodus. Our tagline for the series has been, The Covenant God Revealed. And indeed, the entire book of Exodus has been about God revealing himself more and more to the people of Israel and also to us who read it. Exodus began with the Hebrews enslaved in the nation of Egypt. And the Egyptians were treating them, Bible says, ruthlessly and made their lives hard and bitter so what they, they groaned and cried out. But I'm not sure who they were crying out to. Bible tells us in other places that these, these Hebrews that were living in slavery in Egypt had adopted, many of them had adopted the Egyptian gods. And perhaps they'd heard stories about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But listen, this is like four and 500 years later. And they haven't heard from this God in centuries. And so I'm sure many of them assumed that he'd forgotten about them. But when we read at the end of Exodus chapter 2, we learn that God had not forgotten about them. Starting in verse 23 of Exodus 2, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Did you hear those verbs? God saw. He saw what was happening to his people. God heard. He heard their cries for rescue. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, that covenant with Abraham that we read most explicitly about in Genesis 15 and 17. And God knew. He didn't just know what was happening to the Hebrews. He knew what he was going to do about it. He knew how he was going to rescue. And in fact, he didn't just know what had happened to them. He had ordained it. He had told Abraham 500 years or more previously that they would go into a land and be slaves and stay there for 400 years. And the same is true today. God knows what's happening with his people. God ordains the events in the lives of his people. And God hears our prayers. And God knows. He knows us intimately and he knows what we need. And God remembers the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, that his people have become the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In that covenant with Abraham, God promised him basically three things. First of all, even though you're an old man or an old woman, I'm going to make you have, I'm going to, I'm going to make it so you have a son. And that son, Isaac, out of him, I'm going to make a great nation. Number two, he promised him, this nation is going to need a place to live, so I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a land filled with milk and honey, the land of Canaan, 
In fact, he had moved Abraham 1,000 miles from Mesopotamia over to Egypt so that he could sojourn in that land and know where his descendants were going to live. And the third promise that God made to Abraham is, I will be their God. And by implication, they will be my people. And as astounding as it is that God can make an 89-year-old woman become pregnant, as amazing as it is that God could cause a nation to come from that one miraculous birth and give them a land to live in, the most astronomical promise that God made to them is that he would be their God and they would be his people. Because listen, the pagan gods and the nations around there, they didn't behave like that. They lived way off somewhere and they didn't interfere in the lives of their people unless they were angry, so they believed, or, again, so they believed, if they accorded the God some honor or somehow did something for him, sacrificed something for him, then they might deign to do something on their behalf. Is that how you view God? Or maybe you view God in a way that it has become or was popular many years ago, maybe less popular today. It's kind of a kindly, somewhat senile grandfather sitting in a rocking chair, watching down on us from a distance and hoping that maybe we'll turn out okay. Is that how you view God? Maybe, maybe you say, no, I don't view God that way, but let me ask you a question. Do you go days sometimes without giving a second thought to him? Have you had weeks where the only time you give a thought to God is on Sunday morning? These man-made concepts of God are not the God we see in Scripture. The God in Scripture who made the covenant with Abraham promises to be the God, who, a living God, who lives and dwells among his people to save them, to sustain them, to speak to them and to settle among them. As we said early in, the, in Exodus, these people didn't, didn't know God. They didn't know who he was. And so God sets about revealing himself to them. And he begins by revealing to them that he is a covenant God that saves. And he begins by calling out a leader from among the Hebrews, and he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses is like not sure what to do. He's like, oh, wow, a burning bush, but how is this really a God powerful enough to do what he's saying he's going to do? And, and how is he going to convince the people of Israel that this God will lead them out of Egypt? And so God responds to him in Exodus 3.14. He, he says, I... He says, tell me what your name is, Moses does, and what I shall tell them. And God says, I am who I am. Self-existent. Nobody created him. I've always been God. I always will be God, and I will not change. I am who I am. Nobody changes me. 
And he says, say this to the people of Israel, I, I am has sent, me, has sent me to you. And he says, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the Lord, Yahweh. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so God revealed himself to Moses through his name. And then Moses then, and, and then he reveals himself to Aaron. And Aaron comes to join Moses. And they go to the elders. And they reveal God to them. And finally, God reveals himself to the entire nation of Israel, to the entire nation of Egypt, and most predominantly to Pharaoh through ten horrific plagues that so overwhelm and awe the Egyptians that instead of trying to hang on to them as their slaves, they're begging them to go. They're demanding that they go. And the, and the Hebrews say, well, then give me all your money. And they do. They give them all their, their jewels and their treasures. And so the Hebrews, who had been enslaved by the Egyptians, they walk out of Egypt with the entire treasury of Egypt in their back pockets. But God knows they still need affirmation. Even though they've seen his power in the plagues, they still need affirmation. So he appears to them in a cloud, a cloud by day and a fire by night. And he leads them out of Egypt right up to the Red Sea. And then he protects them from the Egyptian army, makes a way for them to pass through, kills the entire army, God is revealing himself to Israel as a God who saves. And I wonder this morning, do you know him as a God who saves? And more specifically, do you know him as the God who has saved you by faith in Jesus Christ? Next, God reveals himself to Israel as the God who sustains. When Israel came up with a need, God provided what they needed. When Israel was thirsty, he provided water. When they were hungry, he provided quail and manna. When they were tired, he provided rest. And when they were attacked by a foreign army, he provided them with a miraculous victory over the Amalekites. He's revealing himself to them as the God who sustains. And to the people of God today, I'm asking you, do you know him as the God who sustains you? Do you know him as the God who provides for your every need? Not your every want, but he knows you and he knows what you need and he provides it. Do you know him? And then God led them by a cloud to the Mount, Mount Sinai, and there he revealed, to them, revealed himself to them as the covenant God who speaks. And again, this was unknown in the ancient world. None of these idols and the false gods that they worshipped ever spoke to them. But off of, out of Mount Sinai, out of the cloud, with the thunder and the lightning and the long trumpet blasts, and the earthquake and the smoke, God speaks to them ten words. And they hear the voice of God. And they go to Moses and say, 
We can't bear to listen to the voice of God. And so they beg him to be the mediator. And so God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain and gives him instructions for the building of the tabernacle so that he can be among them. But do you remember what happened while Moses was up on the mountain? The people got antsy, didn't they? You see, they needed, they needed a God who would settle among them. Their greatest need was to have a relationship with God. Your greatest need is to have a relationship with God. And how can you have a relationship with God if He doesn't dwell among you? How can you have a relationship with a God who's far off? And Moses goes up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And they can look up and they can see that cloud way up there on the top of the mountain. And they're like, where is he? Why isn't he here? Who's going to protect us? If we're attacked again, who's going who's to sustain us? And so they take matters into their own hands, and they go to Aaron, and they say, make us a golden calf. And they worship this golden calf, and they say to each other, this golden calf is the God who brought you out of Egypt and who will lead you to the promised land. They wanted a God whom they could touch and feel. A God, they wanted a God of their own making a God whom they could control. And when Moses, remember, came off the mountain and God, God punished the people severely, but even more terrifying, God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. I'm going to make you, out of you come a great nation. And Moses says, not so, Lord, don't let it be. And he intercedes on the behalf of the people. And so we read in Exodus 33 that, that God relents and He speaks to them this message. Let's, let's look at verse 5 before I look at verse 4. The Lord tells Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go among you, I would consume you. Parents of three-year-olds can identify. So he says, now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. He says to Moses, I'll send you and you can lead the people to the promised land, but I won't go with them because I would consume them. And what does it say in verse 4? It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. Those are ornaments of pagan worship. And it says later, from that time on, they didn't wear those ornaments. So the people heard the disastrous word, and how did they respond? They mourned with a godly sorrow that led to repentance. And they repented of worshiping false gods. And then Moses interceded some more. And finally, God repent, relented. God relented and said, I will go with you. Go ahead and start building the tabernacle. 
And so they build the tabernacle and they consecrate the priests and they consecrate the tabernacle and all the furniture and all the utensils. And that brings us up now to Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. And Moses repeats this next part twice so that we get the full impact of it. He says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He says, Moses couldn't go in. Why? Well, because the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is what he has been leading toward from the very first word of Exodus. God settling among his people and dwelling with them. And he appears as a cloud again, covering the tent of meeting. The same cloud that led them to the Red Sea separated them from the Red Army, uh, Red Army, from the uh, Egyptian army. The cloud that when, when they were grumbling in the wilderness, and God says, have them look out to the wilderness in the evening. And there he appears in the cloud in all his glory. The cloud that was up on the top of Mount Sinai, the cloud that that was at the, the prototype of the tent of meeting that they had before the tabernacle was built outside the camp. And Moses would go in. And remember, he would come out and his face would be shining. That's the cloud now that is settling on the tabernacle. And it tells us that his glory filled the tabernacle so that Moses could not enter. That's shocking. To me, is that surprising to you that Moses couldn't enter? This is the Moses who had climbed Mount Sinai I don't know how many times to speak with God. The God who would go into the tent of meeting and it says the Lord would speak to him face to face as he would a friend. But now Moses is not allowed to go in to the tabernacle. Because of the glory of the Lord. And then it gives us a little more information. It says that when it was time for them to pack up their tents and, and move on to a new location, that the cloud would move up off the tabernacle and lead the way. And, and the key there is the people were keeping their eyes on the cloud. And when the cloud stayed, the people stayed. And when the cloud moved, the people moved. But that only works if they're keeping their eyes on God. And God is dwelling now in the midst of his people. And this is an occasion for much joy. Because in the presence of God there is fullness of joy. And his right hand pleasures forevermore. This is a joyful cl climax to the book of Exodus, but there's a hook. And the hook is Moses can't go into the tabernacle. And if Moses can't go into the tabernacle, who can? Right? So what's going to happen? Yeah, it's great that God is there in the midst of the camp, but if we can't relate to him, if we can't commune with him, then how can we have a relationship with him, right? Right? And we get a little bit of an answer. It's a hook, so we keep reading. The book after Exodus is Leviticus. 
And right there in Leviticus 1.1, we get a little sort of answer. It says, and then God called to Moses out of the tent of meeting and spoke to him. And so God is going to continue to speak to Moses. Moses isn't going in, but he's speaking to him out of the tent of meeting. And he gives to him the law, the ritual laws for how to be clean, the ritual laws for how to offer sacrifices, the sacrificial system that people are sinners and so they must offer a sacrifice for their sins to be atoned for. And the moral law, which stands as together, all the law together stands as the constitution of this new nation. And God's presence stayed right there. This wasn't a one-and-done event, folks. This isn't like God settled in the tabernacle and they're like, great, and then he left. He dwelt among his people. You dwell with people who are near you. You dwell with your family. When Aunt Bessie comes for a visit and stays three days that seem like three weeks, she's not dwelling with you. You dwell with your family. God was dwelling in the midst of his people. An occasion for great joy, and yet, even as they built the temple, when the presence of God was there, it was a very limited way that they could commune with God, right? They had to very precisely follow the rituals that God gave to Moses. And then, only the priests could go into the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and only then when he'd made atonement for his sin. And so how are they going to be able to have this relationship with him? And you know the answer to this, right? What did Jason taught us last week, and we've been telling you all along that everything in Exodus, everything in the Old Testament is always pointing to whom? Jesus. And we read on into the book of John, chapter 1. I want you to listen to the Exodus language in John, chapter 1. We've been talking about God dwelling, right? We've been talking about the glory of God filling the tabernacle. Listen to John, chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God dwelling in the midst of the people in the tabernacle is pointing forward to a time when His Son, Jesus Christ, would take on flesh and walk the dusty paths of the promised land among His people. And they could see Him. And they could talk to Him. And we go on in John chapter 1, it says, starting in verse 16, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, meaning Jesus. He has made Him known. Jesus made God the Father known to us. Remember, Philip says, show me the Father, 
And then the hop standard version, it says Jesus uttered an audible sigh. Oh, have you been with me all this time and you still don't get it? When you see me, you've seen the Father. The physical embodiment of the glory of God walked among us for 33 years. And then he was crucified. And now he's dead. Now what? Right? But then he rose from the dead, right? And he walked among us for 40 more days, and everything's great. And he says to them, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he was ascended into heaven. <laughs> so now what? But he ascended into heaven, he told the disciples, so that he could send the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk to you about the great miracle that is the coming of the Holy Spirit this morning. I want you to look in Romans chapter 8. Paul talking to the church. Starting in verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, listen to this, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells, in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The great miracle of Exodus 40 was that God came to dwell among His people. But an even greater miracle is that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit not to dwell with us, but to dwell where? In us. What great joy that ought to bring us. What great happiness that ought to bring us. And then Paul goes on to say, if the Spirit of Him, I love this verse, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There's so much there. Yes, we're going to be resurrected like Christ because the Spirit dwells in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. But what gets me and what I meditate on a lot is the fact that I have that power living in me. And that's the power to slay sin. It's the power that causes me to will and to do His good pleasure. It's the power that Paul says, I preach the gospel with all His energy that powerfully works in me. That's the Holy Spirit. And when Paul says at the end of his prayer that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to His Spirit that is in us, according to His power that is in us. The power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. Church, you know, as a teacher, I learned through trial and error that it was a really good idea to set high expectations for my students and told them what those expectations were. And I found that if I did set the high expectations and told them what those expectations were, I had a far greater chance 
of having them really strive to meet those expectations. And I want to encourage you this morning to set high expectations for yourself, for your life in the Spirit. Because you have the same Spirit dwelling in you that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And we ought to, we ought to live with joy because of that. And we ought to walk through our lives every day. Be thou my vision, right? That ought to be our vision. That I have the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwelling in me. I don't live in that reality. That's the power that allows us to walk by faith and not by sight. And Paul says, I've lost my place here. Paul says in Romans 8, farther down, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Are you being led by the Spirit of God? How do we... How do we do that? Well, first of all, we can't do it in our own power. We have to do it by the power of the Spirit. But how can we make that a reality in our lives? Well, we need to, we need to know the God who speaks, right? How do we know the God who speaks? We read the Bible. How do we have a relationship with the God who sustains us? We pray. We spend time in prayer. Well, I don't have time. I don't have time to read the Bible and pray. It's great for you. You're, you're an old man. You don't have kids at home. And I tell you today, folks that you might as well say to me, you know, I say, boy, you're looking awfully skinny. Well, I don't have time to eat. Boy, you're looking blue in the face. Well, I just don't have time. I can't make time to breathe. Folks, you need to make time to pray and to read Scripture. And you need to make time to engage with the church. I love that you're all here on Sunday morning. We'd love to see you all back next, Wednesday, next Sunday night for a prayer gathering. We'd love to see you all in piney families. We'd love to see you all in discipleship groups. And I get the time factor. I really do. But I'm telling you that this is building treasure for heaven that's going to last for eternity. And so I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you that whatever is taking time away from you from reading the Word and from praying, unless it's something of absolute necessity or you're taking care of a sick child 24 hours a day, that you make time. I want to challenge you this morning, before you pick up your phone every morning, pick up the Bible and read it. And pray. And if you are spending time, there's nothing wrong with reading novels or watching movies or watching TV or, or going through, through the internet. Although for some of you that are anxious about what's going on in the world, I would say stop looking at the internet. And I would challenge you to spend your time 
where it will do the most good for eternity. Reading the Word of God and praying. And folks, if we will do that, and engaging with the church, and if we'll do that, we will find that we have great joy because of the Spirit of God that is dwelling in us. I want to close with this, because what we are experiencing now is just a foretaste. All through this series in Exodus, we've been saying that this, everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the fulfillment. It's pointing to Jesus, but it's even pointing farther. And we have shown you that, that the tabernacle is just a shadow of the reality. And I want to show you the reality today. I want to read an entire chapter of the Bible to you. I don't think we've read it yet in our series on Exodus. Maybe we've read a verse or so, but it's Revelation 15. And as I read Revelation 15, I want you to look for the Exodus language. I want you to look for the tabernacle, tent of meeting language. I want you to look for the glory of God and God dwelling in his, with his people. Here we go, Revelation 15. John sees a vision. He said, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. There's an Exodus word, plagues, Right? The plagues were an outpouring of the wrath of God on the people of Egypt and on Pharaoh because he wouldn't let the people go. And they'd enslaved and treated his people harshly. The wrath of God. Verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Hmm, that reminds me of Mount Sinai a little bit. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Oh, look at verse 5. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Yeah? The tabernacle that they built in Exodus was just a shadow. There's a reality in heaven. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And what happens in verse 8? The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I'm glad there's that word, until. That tells us we will be entering the sanctuary. I hope that chapter gives you goosebumps. If you're a child of God, I hope it does. 
And I pray that you will walk through life with that vision in front of you, knowing that you are not a citizen of this world, but you're a citizen of a better country. I pray that you have seen the glory of God as we've preached through Exodus and that it has been a life-changing experience for you, transforming you. I pray that you will meditate on the reality of God's kingdom, meditate on the reality that Exodus is pointing to. And I pray that it will cause you to learn to walk more, by, more and more by faith and less and less by sight. I pray that you will live all of life knowing that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that He empowers you to be victorious in all situations in this life. I pray that it will convince you that this is not our home. This is not the final reality, and we need to be living our lives with our hope in the re true reality. Live your life, Piney Ridge Church, by faith for the glory of God, keeping your eyes on Jesus just as the people of Israel kept their eyes on the cloud. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray because you are a God who can do far more than we ask or think. I pray that you will work miraculously in our hearts. I pray that we will, that you will empower your church to accept the challenge I threw out today, Lord to make reading your word a priority, to make spending time in prayer with you a priority, to make engaging with the local church a priority. And I pray that you will fill them with great joy because they are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.